Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, Marvin but the Tyler truth lives in the body, and that's where change worker. occurs. Born and raised are you ready to change the narrative? Marvin currently resides in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, working as a therapist with the Radical Therapy Center. He's also a co-founder of the mental health collective Melanated Social Work. Marvin is a queer, bisexual, black creator, writer, consultant, public speaker, mentor, wedding efficient, and radical educator. He encourages others to see the power within themselves and use their voices to fight for justice. Marvin's work will be complete when white supremacy is dismantled and all black people are liberated. Welcome, Marvin. Thank you so much for accepting the invitation to come on and share space with me. It's always special to spend time with a fellow social worker. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. So I like to start with a little background. All right. And I like mm-hmm. to frame the questions so they're kind of focused. So the one I came up for you is, where did you grow up, first of all, just as a basic, but also what was your greatest lesson learned before the age of 16? Ooh, OK. Starting out hot. OK. So I grew up in, in Oakland, California, mm. uh, East Oakland in the Bay Area, born and raised. Greatest lesson before 16. Ooh. It's all retrospect. You know, our adult mind thinks differently about that period of time. So all retrospect. I think for me, I think, so I had a lot of, I wanted to be part of the cool kids and the cool crew. And I think one of the biggest lessons was that you don't have to be friends with everyone. Not everyone is meant to be friends with you. Not everybody is like, deserving of you know your friendship and sometimes we just don't align even at like such a young age i was just like huh like we're the same age we look similar but we're not aligned in in our values yeah i think that was the most important thing that was worth waiting for yeah (laughs) that's good that's good that's a hard one for kids to learn at that developmental age and so to be able to reflect on that i think is important so the next one shouldn't be as difficult, but maybe. Uh, <laughs> when and how did you first learn about racism and white supremacy? Ooh. Okay, it is. So racism, my dad is very pro-black. He grew up in Chicago. He was born in the 40s. He old. But he... Uh, <laughs> Easy now. Oh, wait a minute. I mean, he's mature. No, but he, I mean, he saw a lot of racism growing up in the 50s and 60s. He was marching and he was doing a lot of that stuff. And so he was very open about his, I'm going to say pro-blackness, and he had not the nicest things to say about white people sometimes, which sometimes confused me at such a young age. And I think the Bay Area is one of the cities that's as close to, or area that's as as close to a melting pot as you could see. At the time, anyway, now it's, with gentrification, it's a bit different. But at the time, you know, I had Mexican friends, I had Samoan friends, I had Vietnamese friends, I had white friends, like I didn't understand racism until I actually heard him, like I heard him talking about it, but then experiencing it was a little bit after high school. We were at, it had to be like a St. Patrick's Day parade or some parade or festival, some celebration that was happening in a city that was predominantly white, maybe like 25 or 30 or maybe 35 or 40 minutes away from Oakland. 
We were drinking and bike cop sees a guy that I went to school with and we're all like just hanging out, walking together. He's walking like backwards and you know, he's a little tipsy. So you're kind of all over the place when you're, when you're, when you're in that space. And so this bike cop stops right in the direction that this guy that I went to school with was walking. He's like, my friends kind of going this way. This bike cop rides his bike and stops so that my friend intentionally hits the bike cop. I get it. Or runs into him. And then he's arrested. And we're just like, wait, what just happened? And also all of these belligerent white people around here. And this is the individual that you're going for. And so that was, I think, my first in your face experience with racism. It was just like, oh, this was intentional. It's interesting because we have those moments that we can reflect on like that. But I bet if you spent time with it, there are so many more that came before sure. that, right? But you just didn't, you didn't name it. And that's, that's the nuance. That's the, that's the racial trauma. It makes sense yeah. to me. Yeah. And so when you look back, say, five, 10 years ago, what do you know now that you wish you knew then? 2013, 2014, I'm going to Boston College. So I'm right before Boston College. So, ooh, that's a lot of the identity stuff. That's I am enough. That is, uh, I was still closeted at that time. So I was not comfortable with my sexuality at that time. I was searching for something that I needed to look within for. You know now that it was all about the inside job. Yeah. Yeah. What was yeah. Boston College like for you dealing with multiple identities? Yeah, that experience. And this is I'm learning it's similar for many people's experiences that their experience in graduate school is always tough, not only because of the schooling and internships and stuff. And I'm speaking specifically about abuse or LPCs, folks that are uh, therapists and counselors. But like outside life stuff also was like happening for a lot of people at, during that time, too. And for me, Boston was a completely different city than I had ever lived in. I've lived in San Diego. I've lived in Miami. I lived in, and obviously living in Philadelphia and in, in, in Oakland. And so Boston was just, it was cold in, in many different ways. Right. Not just in the in, in weather. My first winter was when they had uh, snowmageddon is what they oh. called it. <laughs> So that's when they had like snow up to like my knees and all of this stuff. I just thought this is how winter was. Like I'd never experienced snow or winter. Cold in that sense, but then also cold and like people generally are just not kind. <laughs> I remember working at an internship at a middle school and walking down the hallway. And when you're working with other teachers and I've worked in school settings and summer programs and things like that, you say good morning. Yeah, right. Like, it's just a common thing. You're walking, someone else is walking this way. You're saying good morning to them. People intentionally looked in the other direction as we were walking. And I'm just like, oh, then so I'm like, is it because I'm black? Is it because I'm an intern? Is it because I, this just isn't the culture of, I had no idea. I just remember it was weird. It did not feel welcoming. It did not feel warm. I mean, even, you know, first moving to Boston, I didn't have a place to live. So I was still in this, this period of trying to find housing. And I remember that I'd look on like Craigslist or whatever other things I was looking at, at the time and everything was fine. Me going to, you know, being in a master's program and kind of my style, what I like, you know, kind of those get to know you type things. Cause I was going to live with somebody 
and we do a video call and all of a sudden communication stopped. And I was like, oh, okay. So then I had to start saying, I'm a black African-American grad student going to Boston College because I'm like, well, I don't know who's going to kind of go see me again. I appreciate you sharing that because I talk to kids. I work in a school right now and I talk to kids. It's a predominantly white school, but it's an international school. But because black kids have had the experience of being in this international school, they look at predominantly white colleges and they think, oh, I've had this experience. I'm good. And I know a few mm. of them look at Boston. And I say, if you haven't spent time there, you don't know till you know. And yeah. I'm from the East Coast, so we know. But yeah. a lot of kids don't know. And so it's like, you need to know what you're getting yourself into. It's not an international place per se. It's still pretty segregated. And like you said, very obviously, very obvious and very blatant. So I'm not yeah. surprised. Yeah. What made you choose Boston? Yeah. So I mentioned that I lived in Miami. And so I moved there because I uh, served two years with an AmeriCorps program called City Year. Cool. And so City Year, for folks that may not be familiar, um, it's a uh, it's under the AmeriCorps umbrella. Mm-hmm. It brings together 16 to 24 year olds for one year of service, essentially. And it's working in the lowest performing schools in in a certain city. And I was in Miami-Dade County. I think at the time was either the fifth or sixth lowest performing school district in uh, the state of Florida. So yeah, so I did that. I did two years actually with City Year. And so every year you get stipend, which is like an education award. And then City Year also had what they call give a year partnerships. And so essentially it's you give a year of service and they will give you essentially like money or like a scholarship toward tuition for a certain number of universities and a certain number of master's programs. So there were obviously some for education. There were some for social work. I think there were a couple for psychology. And so after speaking, after moving back to Oakland after city year, speaking to my previous supervisor and she was just like, you should definitely be a social worker. They need more black men. You would be great at it. I looked into it, saw that Boston had a give a year partnership and they were paying, I think they were paying like 50-ish percent of tuition. Oh, And so I was like, okay, I can do that. <laughs> hey, um, that's how they get us. <laughs> and so the job that I was at in Oakland was just awful. And I was like, I need to get a master's. I need to be in charge. Yeah, yeah. It totally makes sense to me. Would you become a social worker again? Is this the career path that you would choose again after having been in it for a minute? Today, the answer is yes. Okay. <laughs> That's, fair. That's completely fair. Uh, on other days, the answer is no. I know. Can you there say a little some... bit about that? Absolutely. This work is hard. This work is hard. Hard is an understatement. I think when we say hard, I think we as, you know, helpers and healers and social workers and therapists know what we mean by hard and yeah. other people don't understand. Hard is an understatement. There are days where I'm, you know, drained. There are days when I feel like I've given all that I can give and carrying people's story, hearing people's traumas, the transference and countertransference that happens with clients, maybe bringing things up in my own life. Overworked and underpaid, I think is is something that, you know, was very common for me when I was working in, you know, in more community mental health and for the school district. Navigating systems, navigating individuals who are gatekeepers of these systems. If you're working with kids, you're not just working with kids, you're working with their parents and caregivers too, which can be a challenge different providers that you have to partner. Like there's so many different people and you don't know if these people are going to be actually helpful or if you're going to be like, this is another person that's going to add to the trauma and the everything else bad that's happening to my client. Yeah. Right. And so that, that part of it is horrible. I do not like that part at all. 
But on days like today, I'm private practice, so that's lovely. I get to make my own schedule. I work virtually so I can essentially work literally anywhere that has internet. It's so nice to see the clients that I've been working with for years and just how far they've come. And so that for me is just always phenomenal. You know, the men's group that I started is absolutely phenomenal. And now the monthly groups that came out of that. So building this community of black men, all of this stuff, it's great, but it's also healing for me. It's validating for me to know that I am in the right field and that I've made the right decision. I'll um, say to any therapist that comes on here and I actually say it because I teach um, graduate school sometimes as an adjunct. And I, I will say, don't get it twisted. All of us came to this field because we want some of what we're going to be giving. <laughs> We didn't sure. come here by accident and we didn't come here mm -hmm. to get rich. It's because <laughs> it has this corrective experience for us in our yeah. lives and in our profession. But I also yeah. can echo what you've said. I'm over 25 years in social work world in general. At one point, I felt like I lost my soul. And that's as a result of systems that are mm -hmm. marginalized and white supremacists in nature, not in nature, in structure. And let everything you said. I just want to echo everything you said there so I can relate to that. I was in a class last night. I teach a, at the Psychoanalytic Institute in California, and the class is on the decolonization of mental health. And one of the professionals asked, what do you mean by that? And so I thought, I want to ask Marvin that. What do you think of that? What does that mean to you? I went on uh, Instagram Live with a woman, her name is Mashera D. Winston, and she talks about moving toward whole community care rather than just like individual care and kind of how our healthcare system, especially around mental health, is very individualized, right? We very much focus on an individual therapist seeing an individual client, and then there's even separation between those two individuals too, right? And something that she said that was really like eye-opening, and I'm just like, oh yeah, is that we need to lean into the traditions and into the customs of our ancestors. She said that mental health did not start when the American Psychological Association said that it started. Our ancestors have had customs, have had practices, have traditions. And many of those things were actually stolen by white folks and then kind of coined it something different. Or we just don't use them. Yeah. Um, or they're kind of not vilified. What's the word? Like things like voodoo, right? Yeah. Things like... Yeah more spiritual heal, like even Reiki for some people, right? People may see it as other kind of thing and yeah. not like proper therapy, right? And so when we talk about decolonized mental health, it's really looking at where we are and really looking at it from not the lens of cisgender heterosexual white men, but looking at it from the lens of the most marginalized folks, mm. right? And so are the most marginalized folks going to have the same therapeutic experience as a rich cisgender heterosexual white man in the practices that we've been taught. No. <laughs> and I'll say in my experience, no, yeah, maybe no, other people sure. have, and it's fine. But in my experience and the experience of a lot of black and brown therapists, a lot of these theories, a lot of these practices, a, a lot of these ways that we are supposed to show up as therapists are really unnatural to us and are actually widening the gap between, you know, what care, in my opinion, should look like. No, just something just like came up for me as you said that. And yeah. the idea of, you know, that in black and brown communities and part of the global majority, mental health is stigmatized. I think you just switched something for me, which is the Eurocentric format of 
mental health. The white supremacist structure of mental health is stigmatized. But when you think about it from a multicultural ancestral lens, health, mental health, spiritual health is not pathologized. It's actually considered the primary process in healing. So I love the way that's framed. And I I love that shift that I just had. Thank you. And something, and I just did a keynote at the Texas School Social Work Conference, which was a really great experience. And so the title was Pushing the Boundaries, How Radical Social Work Leads to Liberation for All. And so I actually go through a bit of the history around how the social work and the mental health field has been harmful, primarily to Black, Brown, Indigenous folks. And these are only a few things, you know, things like dropotomania, right? Like this diagnosis is as the explanation in the 1800s as to why enslaved Africans continue to run away from their slave masters. It must be a mental health issue for these folks, right? Who doesn't want to be whipped and tortured? Imagine. Hysteria. We think about women mostly were given that diagnosis. And these were women that were brutally traumatized. These were folks who were raped, who were beaten, who were just like not able to live freely. They're just a hysterical, crazy woman. Yeah. Right. There are numerous ways in which this field has been incredibly harmful and incredibly problematic. And I think that we really have to start looking in the mirror as social workers, as healers, as helpers, and really and, and really start to be intentional about what we're doing and knowing like, why? Like, why am I doing this with my client? Is this the best plan of action for my client? Do I need to tweak something a little bit? Yeah, that's So decolonized great. mental health, I think, is really leaning in to ancestral root work and taking what works from what we've been taught and intentionally and explicitly stating that some of these things don't work and maybe we shouldn't be doing them anymore. Yeah. The idea that you said about harm, right? So we're in the profession of do no harm. And actually there's a lot of harm that's been done in the face of this work. I say all the time to classes, I hope I'm alive for the day when the global majority starts to realize all of the unethical treatment it has received in the face of medical and mental health. And there is a class action lawsuit that shakes the entire system up because Mm. it is so deep and it's just not known. And I love the idea of shifting that focus again to consider what worked in the past and what doesn't work now. That's powerful. Thank you for sharing that. And congratulations on that keynote. That's awesome. Oh, thank you. We're at the point now where I still have many more questions for you. So I'd love to pause here. Thank you for the first half of the podcast. And we're going to get into a little bit of your social media in the next episode. And also, of course, your TED Talk. We'll join you again in the next episode. Look forward to it. Sounds good. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.